Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bill Barnwell Show. I'm Bill Barnwell. And before we get into today's episode, I want to quickly tell you about another ESPN podcast. That is First Draft, hosted by Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShay, and Field Yates. Three brilliant people when it comes to the NFL. And as you probably already know, the NFL Draft is right around the corner, and there's no better place to get all your draft analysis, updates, and deep dive information than with First Draft. So download and follow First Draft wherever you get your podcasts. And also, listen up, fight fans. If you want the best UFC experience, you need ESPN+. Plus. With every pay-per-view event, live fight nights, exclusive originals, and an extensive archive, ESPN Plus delivers. So sign up now at ESPNplus.com. And now, here's the Bill Barnwell Show. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8 Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. Well, guys, today on the Bill Barnwell Show, we are going to try something a little different. My guest today is me. Uh, I am hosting the show solo today. Uh, I've wanted to do this for a while, and so I feel like this is a good time to do it. Um, I'm going to take some questions from you guys and answer them myself. Uh, it's going to be a solo show. It will be a sort of a mailbag question and answer thing. I might take some of the questions and expand on them a little bit, but wanted to talk about maybe some of the core things you guys are interested in after the free agent period is up. So it took about 20 questions here, I think. Try and get through them. Uh, as quickly and as interestingly as possible. Uh, let me know if you guys like this show. Maybe we'll do more like this in the future. Just send me a tweet at Bill Barnwell. If for some reason I have you blocked, which I would never do, uh, you can email me at barnwellespn at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's talk about these questions. Let's start first from at U of M, who says, quote unquote, you wrote about cycling rookie quarterbacks with respect to Jared Goff. Well, how about Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson? Assuming Trevor Lawrence is out of reach, what would a fair price be for a trade package revolving around Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson for the second overall pick? Is the second best quarterback clean enough to make this viable? So what uh, this person is referring to is an article I wrote, I believe, in 2017 or 2018. Uh, I wrote a piece about the quarterback market and about how a team might consider basically drafting a quarterback, holding on to him for three years, and then before his contract or his extension comes due, trading him for the next young quarterback on a cheap deal. It would allow you to get that sort of benefit of having a cheap quarterback and being able to use that cap space and cash elsewhere on your roster, while also maybe maintaining high-level quarterback play. I think you need a team that has a lot of talent around any quarterback. I think you need a uh, a, a coach who is excellent when it comes to developing young quarterbacks, a offensive scheme that works. And I think you need to be able to trade the quarterback you have for the draft capital you would need to get the next guy. And so I think I, I wrote about this with Dak Prescott a little bit, with Carson Wentz a little bit, but the guy who came up more often than not 
with this idea was Jared Goff. Jared Goff that night threw five touchdown passes. Then I wrote the article against the Minnesota Vikings. He was brilliant. Rams kind of poo-pooed the idea. And then what do you know, a few years later, the Rams are trading Jared Goff after, of course, they've signed him to a massive extension. So it would be very tough to make this work for any team. I think you need a perfect sort of confluence of circumstances. And I think with the teams in question, that's going to be tough. With Josh Allen, I think the Bills have been burnt so many times by subpar quarterback decisions. Uh, I, I feel like that would really, really infuriate that fan base, uh, especially if it didn't work out. I don't know if the Bills have a perfect offensive infrastructure. I think they have a lot of depth on the offensive line. Obviously, Stefan Diggs is an excellent receiver. Uh, Brian Dable's done an excellent job as offensive coordinator. But I think Josh Allen has held up his end of the bargain. And with Lamar Jackson, I think it's so difficult because he's such a unique player that I think they've really built that offense in Baltimore around his strengths. And I think that, you know, there's not really another quarterback like Lamar Jackson in this year's draft class or in a typical year. So I, I think it would be really difficult to make it work with Lamar Jackson. Now, someone like Baker Mayfield, that makes more sense to me as a guy who's playing in that sort of Shanahan Kubiak scheme, other Kevin Stefanski, a guy who is someone who, of course, we know uh, has been inconsistent as a pro when everything is working around him. He looks very good, but we saw in 2019 when he struggled, well, you need to have the right pieces around him for Baker to play at a high level. So I think that would be an example of a team that might consider making this sort of trade if there was a quarterback they loved. Now, of course, Browns fans would probably be furious, given that when I suggested Deshaun Watson was a better player than Baker Mayfield, hundreds of them very angrily told me uh, how stupid I looked and how dumb of an idea it was to suggest that Baker Mayfield was not better than Deshaun Watson as a football player. This was before the Deshaun Watson news off the field broke, but I do think uh, there is a certain love between the Browns fan base and Baker Mayfield, deservedly so. And I think it'd be tough. I don't know if any team is ever going to do this, but I think the Browns would be the closest thing to a team that might make sense given the circumstances. We'll talk more about Baker, I think, a little later on. JF Gardner 88 asks, who's the best remaining unsigned player and what team would be a good fit? Well, according to the ESPN Top 100 free agent board, the best player available is former Chiefs right tackle Mitch Schwartz, who I think is a phenomenal player when healthy, but he's coming off of back surgery. Not sure if he's going to be ready to sign a contract this offseason. I, I don't know. Maybe he will be. I'm not sure if he knows yet. Um, he may retire, of course. That's not, not an option. Or sorry, it is an option. Uh, he could possibly come back and play for the Chiefs, or he could go somewhere else. Um, teams that come to mind for me. I thought maybe Tennessee, given their needs at right tackle, the Bears, uh, just cut Bobby Massey. They certainly have a hole on the right side of their line. And the Packers, who have Billy Turner at right tackle, who's probably best as a swing tackle. They could be a team that could really upgrade by adding another piece to their already very good offensive line. And I would say in terms of the guys who are probably playing in 2021, I would go with Mr. Bitcoin himself. I'd go at Russell Akum, where I think there are several teams who could use a left tackle. The Steelers come to mind for me. They're using uh, Chuksakora for right now, maybe, as their starting left tackle with Alejandro Villanueva, who is still unsigned and could still come back to the Steelers. But they have a whole left tackle. The Chiefs, of course, who cut Eric Fisher and cut the aforementioned Mitch Schwartz. Mike Remmers is coming back at tackle, but certainly they're going to get a left tackle, whether it be in the draft, whether it be later in free agency. I think Akum can make sense there. Or the Colts, who have Anthony Costanza retiring. There's been some talk about maybe moving Quinton Nelson 
from left guard to tackle. Of course, there's star guard. I would rather keep uh, rather keep Nelson on the interior. I'd rather go out and get a left tackle. And Akun has struggled to stay healthy, but generally an above average tackle when he has been on the football field. So I think a short-term commitment, maybe one or two years would make sense there for one of those teams. Uh, Brody Sports Talk asks, which team has the worst contract signed this offseason and what is that contract? I wrote about this for ESPN. I wrote my uh, favorite contracts and my least favorite contracts of free agency. The two deals that come to mind for me on the worst side, number one, Nelson Aguilar of the Patriots, a contract for a guy who very inconsistent during his first few years, run out of town in Philadelphia, even last year in his breakout season with the Raiders, still an 8.6% drop rate. Nobody's going to enjoy that drop rate. A guy who was available for the minimum last year, now signing what's really a one-year $16 million contract or a two-year $22 million contract with the New England Patriots in a market that was not friendly towards wide receivers looking for more than $10 million per year. So thought they really misread the market there. Also, the Raiders signing Kenyon Drake to a one-year deal for a minimum of $8.5 million. Some of that money does come due before the 2022 season begins. But if the Raiders want to get rid of Kenyon Drake after one year, they would owe him a minimum of $8.5 million or a two-year $11 million contract for a guy who just, he's a, a fine running back, but does I can't imagine paying a premium for Kenyon Drake in this market after what we saw from him last year. And I know they want to use him, or they've said they want to use him at least in a joker role. Well, you're paying for the role that you want this guy to be in. It sort of would be like if you were buying a house and the house cost $250,000 in the market. And you said, okay, well, I think we can take that extra bedroom and convert it into an office and we are going to pay $300,000 for this house. Well, just because you can get something out of it doesn't mean that you need to pay a lot more than the market does. You should be paying a little more than the market does to bring the guy in, but not so much more given the role you have planned for this guy that you should be paying a premium for it. And then on top of that, of course, remember last year, the Raiders wanted to use Lynn Bowden uh, in that sort of joker role and gave up on him after a training camp and traded him to the Dolphins for a mid-round pick. If you give up on Kenyon Drake that quickly, well, you're paying $8.5 million for the privilege of making a mistake for the second time. So I, I don't see the Kenyon Drake signing turning out all that well. Uh, Follow-up. Uh, from Nicosinos, I think is how this is pronounced. I'm sorry. On Twitter asks, why do people laugh about the Raiders running back strategy when it's exactly the same as the Browns and everyone thinks their running back room is awesome? Well, it's a fair question. The differences here, I think, are just in terms of expenditure. Uh, the Browns did not sign Cream Hunt to as expensive of a deal over one year as Kenyon Drake. And Cream Hunt has been better as a running back over the course of his career than Kenyon Drake. With Nick Chubb, same thing. Nick Chubb was a second-round pick. He was actually the selection the Browns got for assuming Brock Osweiler's contract. I think it was 36, maybe, uh, early in the second round, whereas Josh Jacobs was a first-round pick. So uh, certainly spending a lot on running back can work out for you, I suppose, if it's the right team and the right situation. But I do think that Uh, The Raiders have spent more on their running back situation and their running back strategy than the Browns have. And, you know, the Browns are really more of a run heavy team, I think, than the Raiders are as well. So I think it's one thing to go out and spend all that money on running backs or use that sort of draft capital on running backs. If you're going to use a first round pick on a running back or you're going to pay a running back what amounts to the transition tag or close to the transition tag, maybe even close to the franchise tag for a running back, you should probably be a run heavy team. And the Raiders, to their 
to their credit, given that they have plenty of talented passing personnel, are not a run-heavy football team. So I I see what you're saying here, Nick, but I don't think these are exactly the same sort of situation. Um, Dreamfinder Ghost asks on Twitter, would the Chargers be better off drafting an offensive lineman at 13 or trading that pick for Baltimore for Baltimore lineman Orlando Brown Jr.? And if you were Baltimore, would the number 13 pick be enough, given that Baltimore wants to win now, but Orlando Brown is likely gone after 2021? This is an interesting question because Orlando Brown has decided he wants to be left tackle. Got a taste of it last year after Ronnie Stanley went down injured. They The Ravens have given Ronnie Stanley a massive extension, so that position is locked up on their line for years to come. Orlando Brown, one year away from free agency, going to get a big deal. He has decided, I want to be a left tackle. I want to get traded to a team that's going to use me as a left tackle, or presumably I'm going to leave next year to go play left tackle somewhere else. Now, is Orlando Brown an NFL caliber left tackle? Not sure. I mean, he was fine last year, um, but at the same time, I, I do think that it's not so simple as just sort of saying, okay, well, I was good in a small sample. Let me go play there. I mean, we saw Cletio Semele play left tackle for a stretch for the Browns, and I don't think he would have been a great spot. I, would have been, I think he would have been a great option at left tackle on a full-time basis. I say the Browns. I meant the Ravens. Sorry, Cletio Semele played left tackle full-time, not full-time, for a part-time for the Ravens for a period of time when somebody was hurt and then signed with the Raiders and did not play left tackle. He was a guard for the Oakland Raiders at the time. So I don't think Orlando Brown is worth the 13th overall pick in the draft because you're trading for a guy who maybe is a good left tackle. I don't think you can say for sure he is a franchise left tackle. You are hoping he's a franchise left tackle. He probably expects to get paid like a franchise left tackle. I think he expects that if he hits free agency, somebody will pay him like he's their left tackle of the future. And on top of that, you're trading a very high pick for a player who is about to get very expensive. You're not getting two or three years of that tackle at below market value. Now, you might argue that uh, you might get more out of Orlando Brown, or you might think he's a better choice to play left tackle than any of the guys in this draft, but this is actually a pretty good draft for tackles, it seems like. And Orlando Brown's not a sure thing. If it was a sure thing, guaranteed left tackle for the next five years, if it were Ronnie Stanley, for example, I would say, okay, I could see how this trade could make sense. But for Orlando Brown, I don't think that's likely. I think Brown probably stays there for another year and then leaves in free agency and the Ravens get a third round comp pick uh, after the 2021 season for a guy who probably is is too valuable to trade, but not valuable enough that some team's going to give up a first round pick for Orlando Brown, especially a pick as high as the 13th selection. Gritson Gravy asks, could the Dolphins get more return on their investment by trading down with Carolina, Denver, or the Patriots? Could they get their first back and then some? Seems like a realistic scenario if Trey Lance is available at six, or if one of those teams thinks the other will snag Mac Jones. And I think the question here is for the Dolphins, they can probably get that deal if they want to. I mean, they could have just stayed, you know, at 12 if they were so inclined. Now, of course, they don't know that Trey Lance is going to be available. And if he is available at six on draft day, that may change their calculations. But I think really what this comes down to for Miami is that trade back up after the trade then. They move down to 12 with the Niners, trade back up to six with the Eagles, and they net out a first-round pick in the process, but they get two back from the Niners, send one of their own to the Eagles. 
to me, what that seemed like it was saying is, hey, we want to grab one of the core offensive talents at receiver for Tua Tagovailoa, whether it's Jamar Chase, uh, whether it's Kyle Pitts, you know, whether it's Devontae Smith. They want to add one of those three guys probably to their receiving attack, and that makes sense. They do need to add weapons for Tua Tagovailoa even after signing Will Fuller. Now, if they think they can still get an impact player at receiver or at tight end, I guess, outside of the top six, they should probably make that trade and get the extra first round pick. And if you look at history, honestly, teams are probably too aggressive and too inclined to think that the top of the draft is actually the best available talent at that position in the draft. And I think the classic example of this is 2017. Go back to 2017, three wide receivers taken in the top 10. Corey Davis at five, Mike Williams at seven, John Ross at nine. Corey Davis, up and down tenure with Tennessee, obviously had a very very impressive 2020 season. A guy who looks like he's a borderline number one receiver coming out of Tennessee, now on the Jets. Mike Williams, inconsistent, has games where he looks phenomenal, has games where he might as well be anonymous and not playing, uh, certainly has struggled with injuries, but played at less than 100% for chunks of his pro career. John Ross at nine, I mean, just a total injury mess, which we could have expected coming out of Washington. Guy who really was not healthy for most of his time there. Best receivers in that draft, Chris Godwin, Kenny Galladay, Juju Smith-Schuster, all taken in the second round or later. So I think the Dolphins could probably end up moving down, getting an extra first-round pick, and still adding a significant talent to their receiving core. Now, that could be Rondell Moore, maybe, in the middle of the round. It could be a lot of different guys. But I also wonder, you mentioned the two teams, uh, you mentioned Denver, you mentioned Carolina. I wonder if they could get DJ Moore or Jerry Judy or Cortland Sutton in a trade with one of those teams. If you can, that's a significant talent that you already know has some pro-level capabilities that you could also add to your receiving core. Um, I, I think the evidence says the best thing to do is have as many first-round picks in the NFL draft as possible. And so if you're the Dolphins, I clearly think they want to add one of those named guys, but if they don't want to add one of those three named guys, or if they think that they can add significant talent later in the top 10, or maybe even later in the draft, I think they would probably be smart to trade back down. But again, the fact that they traded up to six tells you that they probably are stuck or probably insist on grabbing one of those three guys at receiver. Uh, Smithsmith, another receiver question here, asked potential wide receiver pickup for the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, we know the Chiefs were interested in Juju Smith-Schuster. He signed back with the Pittsburgh Steelers. They let Sammy Watkins leave. So this would be a replacement for Sammy Watkins. The problem is there's not a lot of talent out there at receiver at this point. A lot of guys who kind of already fit what the Chiefs have. Like someone like a Corderell Patterson, for example, is going to be a gadget player. Line up in the backfield, take a few snaps at receiver, be a good return guy. They already really have guys who can be that sort of player in their offense. I, I sort of wonder if they would make a run at Antonio Brown. I think he is the biggest name receiver left. And even given that you saw someone who was not the AB of old in Tampa Bay, certainly I think the most impressive receiver with the highest upside available out there. Um, Antonio Brown, of course, might go back to Tampa. There's been some interest in other teams. The Bucs don't desperately need another receiver after bringing back in Chris Godwin. Um, I, I think that they could probably let him go. Antonio Brown, if you want to get that one last big contract, well, if you're going to settle for a one-year deal, the Chiefs make the most sense. It's going to be the opportunity for you to have you know, the, the best talent around you. Don't know if the Chiefs would bring him in. There are certainly teams who would not sign Antonio Brown, but I think there are 
um, certainly an on-field fit there. Now, for the Chiefs, they may also be sitting here saying, hey, let's wait until the end of training camp because guys are going to come free. Someone like a Jameson Crowder or an Albert Wilson might become free at the end of training camp if they get cut. I could certainly see the Chiefs adding one of those guys in sort of late free agency as we get towards August and towards the beginning of September. Uh, Wellesley Wool asks on Twitter, what is Jimmy G worth in a trade? Second round last time, but must be less now. An older, more injured, and more film on Jimmy Garoppolo to give teams a better idea of his ceiling. This is a very interesting question, and I think it depends on when the Niners make a Jimmy Garoppolo move. So we know he has a no-trade clause, and that's going to limit the value because the Niners can't really shop him to everyone in the league and say, okay, let's try and get up a bidding war because Jimmy Garoppolo might only be interested in getting traded to one or two teams. In that case, you're limited to those two teams. Um, I would assume the Patriots are a team Jimmy Garoppolo is willing to be traded to. I'm not sure about anyone else on the market. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo seems like he probably wants to stay in San Francisco if they're going to actually have him as the starter. But I was talking about this with Twitter uh, on Twitter with uh, Tim Kawakami, the excellent reporter, and Tim was pointing out the Niners can keep Jimmy Garoppolo until training camp and sort of see what they have in camp with Jimmy and whichever quarterback they take in the top three. Uh, and if the quarterback is ready, hey, you have a trade shit right there. You could go out and maybe uh, ship Jimmy Garoppolo off to a team that has an injury, like the Sam Bradford situation with the Minnesota Vikings a couple of years ago, where Carson Wentz came into camp, was not expected to play much his rookie year, actually fractured a rib, I believe, in his first preseason game. So got no reps. It was pretty obvious he was going to be on the bench for a while. They even had Chase Daniel, I believe, there on the roster as well. And then, of course, Bradford gets hurt. The Eagles see an opportunity. Sorry, no, uh, Teddy Bridgewater gets hurt. Bradford comes in for the Vikings. The Eagles get a first-round pick back for Bradford. Carson Wentz immediately becomes the starter. And all those plans go to wig, uh, go by the wayside for because of one injury to Teddy Bridgewater. Now, is that likely to happen again? No. There's not many situations where a team loses a quarterback to an injury in training camp and then trades for a player of that stature. Um, The Dolphins come to mind with Ryan Tannehill. They went out and they signed Jake Cutler. When the Rams so many years ago lost Trent Green, they promoted Kurt Warner. That move worked out really well. Um, I don't think there is a significant chance of that happening for a first-round pick. I think that, as Tim noted, the Niners can absolutely keep Jimmy Garoppolo because I think the value in shedding that contract is not to add talent right now necessarily, but to have that cap space that they can use to re-sign someone like a Fred Warner now or to carry that over to future years so it's easier to sign guys like Nick Bosa, Mike McGlinchey, and Debo Samuel. Now, if they trade Jimmy Garoppolo right now, I think they could probably get a three or a four. When you get closer to camp, if there's no obvious injury, given that a team is going to have to sort of force him into their lineup, a team is not going to have those reps with him in training camp, I think it's probably closer to a five or a six. And the other concern, of course, is that Jimmy Garoppolo himself gets hurt in training camp, and that could eliminate his value and you don't get any benefit out of having him on your roster at that price tag. So I can see why the Niners would be open to the idea of keeping him. I still think the best thing for everyone involved is probably to make that trade now. If you're the Niners and you traded three first-round picks for a guy, I really don't think you traded for a guy you don't think can play right now. Keith Conican asks, what the heck, I'm going to edit that one, are the Titans doing? They improved the defensive line. Certainly true. They added the edge rusher, help with Bud Dupree. 
Uh, they had Danico Autry, who I like a lot on the interior, but they got worse at the secondary, the wide receiver, the offensive line, and they lost their starting tight end. You can't fix all of those in the draft. And Keith is correct, but I think this is an example of why it's important to draft well and why you have to hit on your first round picks, because this is what happens when you don't keep your first round picks around. The Tennessee Titans had Jack Conklin, who was a very good right tackle, maybe a little overrated given his all pro nod in year one, but a very good right tackle has a knee injury that declined his fifth year option. He is a good fourth year, goes to the Browns, looks like a superstar. They draft Isaiah Wilson to replace him last year. Isaiah Wilson has some off-field issues already out the door, which is a disaster scenario. I don't think you can plan on your first round pick, uh, you know, sort of not being ready to play and leaving the team after one year. But if the Tennessee Titans just handled Jack Conklin's situation better, they wouldn't have needed to draft Isaiah Wilson. They declined Corey Davis's fifth-year option and then loosen after a breakout year because they didn't have the leverage to get a contract done. They declined Adore Jackson's option, another first-round pick, uh, at cornerback. And maybe Adore Jackson was not a superstar. Maybe he did not live up to expectations. Certainly struggled to stay healthy last year. But, I mean, that's a guy you're planning on being a building block for your roster. And now you're stuck with Janoris Jenkins as sort of a flyer to sort of help rebuild that cornerback situation. This is a team that was really using sort of patches from free agency to try and solve problems uh, that they didn't, they hadn't filled in the draft before this point. Guys like Malcolm Butler, Kenny Vaccaro, Genevieve Clowney, but those moves either worked for a year or two and then didn't work or they didn't work at all. With the Clowney situation being the closest example. Now they're not done. They're not going to fill all of these holes in the draft. There's still a lot of actually talent at cornerback available. AJ Bouye is out there. Casey Hayward is out there. Stephen Nelson, Brian Poole, Brashad, or Brashad Breland. Yeah. I mean, definitely some cornerbacks who can contribute uh, as a starter or as a slot corner available. So I think Tennessee could still add one of those guys and maybe address one of those positions in the draft. But I do think that this is a team that because they were not able to bring those first round picks through their system and then turn them into starters, we're seeing the holes on their roster as a result. Uh, Make Jillar on Twitter, asked another question about the Niners quarterback situation. Do you believe it would be a mistake if Shanahan actually traded all that draft capital to move up to three to take Mac Jones, a good prospect, but with a visible ceiling, given that the problem McVay and Shanahan had with their previous quarterbacks was their inability to perform off schedule. So I think there's a couple ways to think about this tree. I mentioned number one, the financial benefits. They're going to be able to take that cap space at quarterback and either roll it over or use it to straight up re-sign guys who they have on their roster. And that's not only cash space, but also straight up cash. I mean, the cash matters in the situation. You know, paying someone like a Mac Jones $40 million less over the next two years than Jimmy Garoppolo is going to help. I mean, you know, owners, you, you think of NFL teams as sort of this unlimited cash model, and maybe you should because it's really a license to print money. Owners do not think of teams that way. And every team has a budget, and those budgets have gone down because of the pandemic. So this would be a situation where it's just, hey, we have $40 million to work with now that we can use to actually pay Fred Warner uh, the money that's going to go into his pocket, let alone the cap constraints. There's another way to think about it, which is this. The Niners were a Super Bowl team in 2019 with great talent around a competent quarterback who was healthy and on the football field. Trading up for someone like a Mac Jones might give them that competent quarterback play for a fraction of what Jimmy Garoppolo costs and for a guy who's more likely to actually stay healthy on the field for all 16 games. So they may think of it as, okay, 
we don't need a guy with a high ceiling. We just need a guy who can get us through for cheap because we have enough talent around that guy that we're going to be just fine. Now, the other thing I want to say here, and I read about this a little bit before the last sort of big crop of quarterback, uh, the big quarterback class we had, which was 2018, right? That was the class with Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, Lamar Jackson. Who was the fifth quarterback in that class? Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, Josh Rosen, Josh Allen. There was a fifth quarterback in that class. And he, Sam Darnold, you can understand why I forgot Sam Darnold. That's probably fair. Um, we don't know anything about quarterbacks. I wrote about this before the 2018 draft. We know nothing about quarterback prospects. Remember, in that quarterback class, the most pro-ready quarterback, given the scheme he played in college, was Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen is still not ready for the pros. A year later, the most pro-ready quarterback, or a guy who was seen as pro-ready from the next quarterback draft class, was Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones is not pro-ready. Again, he's years away from looking like he knows what to do with a pass rush in his face. Lamar Jackson was not perceived as a pro-ready quarterback, and he has been pretty much dominant as a runner and a passer from the time he was handed the starting job in Baltimore. So the idea that Mac Jones is pro-ready, the idea that Justin Fields is not, the idea that uh, Mac Jones has a limited ceiling, the idea that any of these guys are ready or not ready or have a ceiling or don't have a ceiling, they're pro-ready, they're not pro-ready, we have absolutely no idea. For all we know, Mac Jones has the highest ceiling of any quarterback from this draft class. Now, I don't think that's true, but I've been wrong before, and I think a lot of other people have been wrong before as well. So I think I would trust Kyle Shanahan here. You know, I, I sort of, I don't think he's on Andy Reid's level when it comes to getting the most out of quarterbacks, but with Patrick Mahomes, that was a guy who was not seen in a lot of places as a top-tier quarterback. It wasn't like he was in the discussion next to Trubisky by any means, which is ridiculous to say now, but that was the case at the time. But when Andy redrafted Patrick Mahomes, it was okay. A guy who knows a lot about quarterbacks just took this guy very high. He's probably going to be pretty good, and that's what turned out. So if Kyle Shanahan is willing to draft Mac Jones with the third overall pick, I'm inclined to think he knows more about quarterbacks than I do. Now, again, doesn't mean he's going to take a quarterback three. Doesn't mean he can't be wrong, but I'm willing to at least entertain the notion that Mac Jones is better than I think we're perceiving him to be right now. Tyler Radar three asks, why do NFL teams not learn from mistakes? The draft constantly shows it's a crapshoot, but teams keep overpaying for high picks. Free agency is also hit and miss. Why do teams continue to overpay for mediocre talent? Is it pride? Do owners think they're smarter than everyone else? And in light of Jessica Walter passing, uh, I thought about the Arrested Development quote from David Cross's character. Uh, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might work, but it might work for us. I, I think that is sort of how a lot of NFL teams operate. You know, I don't think there's anyone in the NFL who, if you sat down and asked them, how do you build the team? They'd say, okay, we're going to build an entire offensive line through free agency. We're going to trade up and give three first-round picks for a quarterback. We're going to spend a lot of money on a running back. But then that happens because they would rather try and plug a hole than leave it unfilled. They'd rather try and invest their assets, what they have to work with, into improving the team and say, okay, we're probably going to get this wrong and let's not even bother. It's not their money. If they get fired, it's not their draft picks. So uh, GMs and owners, or like I said, it's owner's money, but I think GMs certainly see it as let's take a shot as opposed to uh, 
you know, let's, let's take let's take a shot and try to get lucky as opposed to let's listen to what normally works and not make those mistakes. I think that the Colts, maybe uh, maybe the Ted Thompson Packers are one of the few teams or two of the few teams that maybe operated in a different way. Now, the other thing I would say uh, to your point, Tyler, about do owners think they're smarter than everyone else? There is, I guess this would be survivor bias. I'm not sure. I'm never always sure. The biases always get mixed together for me in my head. Uh, but I think it was sort of a built-in survivor bias if you're a general manager. Because think about what you've done. Now, either there's typically one of two ways to become a GM. Either you're someone like John Lynch. You're a legendary former player. You have been a success at every level of football. You were a good commentator. You were someone who people respected. So, of course, why wouldn't you be good? at general manager, because you've been good at everything else. You know football better than some random dude. So why wouldn't you be successful? Why wouldn't you want to draft Solomon Thomas with the third overall pick? Or why wouldn't you say, hey, if Solomon Thomas was off the board, we were going to take Reuben Foster with the third overall pick? You know better. Does John Lynch know better? Maybe he does. But this certainly has not been significantly better than I think uh, the average general manager over the last few years. And now if you're the more traditional general manager, you start as a scout. You start as an entry-level scout, or even before you're a scout. Maybe you're someone who's just driving players to and from the airport. Uh, you're the Ravens assistants who make $20,000 a year to be the entry-level in a great organization. You work your way up. You're a area scout. You become a cross-checker, maybe. You become a national scout. You become a, a guy who's one of the head scouts for your team. Work your way up. Now you're suddenly uh, in the personnel department. Maybe you're a VP of player personnel. And suddenly you get maybe a few interviews with GM and out of nowhere, seemingly after 20 years, you're a general manager. You're going to believe, given how many people enter in the NFL in scouting roles, in those level roles, who don't become general managers, you can probably talk yourself into the idea that you're the exception to the rule, that you are the guy who actually knows what he's doing. You can count on all the positive decisions you've made in the past, all the moves you've gotten right in the past. You're going to remember those a lot more than you're going to remember the guys who don't pan out or the guys who maybe you wanted the team to draft, but who didn't get drafted, who flamed out elsewhere. You might say, oh, well, if they'd come to us, we would have been stars. They would have had success on our team in our building, but not with that other less impressive team. So I think because these general managers, because these coaches, and to some extent because some of these owners as well, have been successful throughout their careers at lower levels, they assume, well, actually, those rules don't apply to me. And what we see more often than not is that the rules do apply to them. Um, even someone as brilliant, someone as successful as Ozzie Newsom, still traded up to draft Kyle Bowler in the first round. And that might be an example of desperation. You know, I think there are times where smart people do desperate things to try and win. And I think the perfect example of that right now are the Patriots uh, going out and signing guys like Nelson Aguilar to massive deals or certainly big deals when that's something they would not have done in the past. Um, certainly, when you don't have any other choice, you're going to make moves that you wouldn't do uh, when you're in a more secure situation. So I think it's a combination of all those things. But I, I do think that, um, you know, there are people who certainly don't know what they're doing at all in meaningful roles. I don't want to name those people, but you could probably guess based on stuff I've written. I think there are smart people who maybe sometimes don't do smart things. And I don't think I would be any better if given the opportunity. Um. Patrick Mullen asked the Baker Mayfield question I referenced earlier. Do you think Baker Mayfield will see a year two jump that we see with a lot of roomy quarterbacks since this will be his first season with the same offensive coordinator and playbook? I don't know what roomy, what roomy quarterbacks means. 
I thought he might want to say normie quarterbacks, which I think would be very funny, but I'm just going to answer the question with leaving that adjective aside. Is it possible Baker Mayfield makes a year two jump? Yes. Um, he clearly improved as the year went along last year. Uh, after that sort of mid-season stretch, I think it was three games where there was just terrible weather um, in a series of Browns games. Baker really did improve dramatically, and he did that without Odell Beckham. And I think that's pretty telling that he was able to, you know, make Donovan Peoples-Jones look like a meaningful receiver. Um, got on the same page with Jarvis Landry. Jarvis Landry had some nice games in the second half of 2020. I could see that leap happening. But I also think that one of the reasons Baker Mayfield was so good last year is that his five starting offensive linemen missed a combined seven games all year. Five of those were Wyatt Teller, who was really impressive last year. Uh, but certainly I feel like a, he's a run first guard as opposed to a guard who's better in pass protection. His tackles mostly healthy last year at uh, Jedrick Wills and Jack Conklin. So if those guys stay healthy, I think you get a great season out of Baker, maybe better than what we saw during the second half of last year. Um, I think there's still going to be a run first team in Cleveland, but I certainly think Baker looked better as the year went on. But if the offensive line takes a step backwards, if they're not as healthy as they were in 2020, wouldn't shock me if Baker took a step backwards as well. I think he is a quarterback where when things around him are good, when he's protected, when he feels secure and confident, he is a very impressive quarterback. But when he has a mediocre offensive line, when he doesn't have any confidence, he's going to get protected. We see the 2019 Baker who was running for his life at the first hint of pressure. Skippy Long Style One asks on Twitter, can you think of other examples of a team building around a quarterback after a terrible season like Cam and the New England Patriots? So I would say first and foremost, I don't think Cam had a terrible season. I think Cam struggled. I think that the COVID uh, hit really impacted him for three games in the middle of the year. I think he had the worst receivers in football. And I would say maybe by a considerable margin last year um, in terms of what they're running out on a week-to-week basis. I mean, Jacoby Myers looked like prime Wes Welker compared to guys like Demir Bird and Akeel Harry who are playing meaningful roles. They had nothing at tight end. I mean, James White is a fine receiving back, but there was nobody who was winning one-on-one coverage very consistently last year. And I think that for whatever I, whatever questions I have about what the Patriots have done this offseason, I do think that they've made major upgrades at receiver for camp. And I think he'll look better accordingly. Now, are there examples of a team building around a quarterback after a terrible season? Yes. The guy who comes to mind for me is Trent Dilfer. And I know these numbers are from a different era. They're from the early 90s. So take them with a grain of salt. But let me remind you of what Trent Dilfer's first three seasons were with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He was taken, I believe, in the top 10. Rookie year, he only plays 46, he only takes 46 passes. He completes 46% of his attempts, which is not good, even by any measure. Even in the 70s, that was not good. He throws six interceptions on 46 pass attempts. That's bad. You're not going to give up on a guy that quickly. Well, we've seen with maybe Josh Rosen, for example, teams do give up on quarterbacks about that quickly. Year two, 54% completion percentage, four touchdowns, 18 picks. That is a disaster season. That is worse than Josh Rosen was for the Cardinals in his first year. I would not have faulted the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the slightest for moving on from Trent Dilfer after that season. But instead, they bring in Tony Dungy. The defense improves dramatically. Year three, better, but not good. 55.4% completion percentage, 12 touchdowns, 19 
interceptions. At that point, that's three years. I mean, that is basically where Sam Darnold is with worse numbers than Sam Darnold. And the Jets are going to move on from Sam Darnold. That's about as bad as it could get for a quarterback after his first three seasons. And I think nobody would have blamed the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for going for a different quarterback, especially given the strides they were making on the defensive side of the ball. That's three years. It's 17 touchdowns and 43 picks. Well, the Bucs did not dump Trent Dilfer. In fact, they stuck with it for a few more years, and Dilfer improved. He even made the Pro Bowl in his fourth season. Crossed the rest of his career, 96 touchdowns against 88 picks, sorry, 86 picks, excuse me, and then won a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens. Now, I will say, if you're going to be a quarterback like Trent Dilfer, make sure you work with some Hall of Fame defenses. He had a very good agent when it comes to sort of landing in the right places, so give him credit for that. But I'm also going to say, I'm not sure the Patriots are building around Cam right now. I mean, this time last year, the Patriots were telling anyone who wanted to listen that they were going to start Jared Siddham. Everything they were leaking, everything they were saying publicly was Jared is our guy. And Cam came in shortly thereafter this period and was the starter. And Jared Siddham looked like a pretty anonymous player. So I don't think that um, the fact that they've made these moves and have not added the quarterback precludes them from going after a quarterback, whether it be in the draft or whether it would be in free agency or perhaps via trade. And speaking of quarterbacks after trade, Jolly Wally 94 asked me, what do you think the Broncos best move a quarterback is? Try and move up to draft a quarterback or try to trade for Sam Darnold. And how far do you think they could go this year if they fix the quarterback situation? Well, I, I really thought they were the best fit for Deshaun Watson before the sexual assault charges off the field came into play. I mean, obviously, I don't think you can make any move for Deshaun Watson now or for the time to come before that situation is resolved. Um, outside of Watson, I think Sam Darnold makes sense at the right price because I think it's not going to cost them very much. Um, I think if you bring in Sam Darnold, you can still realistically you know, have him compete with Drew Locke. It's not as if you're going to be giving up on Drew Locke altogether. I think the thing is you have to get him to negotiate on that fifth-year option. You don't want him guaranteed for 2022 at something north of $20 million. Remember, by the way, the fifth-year option now fully guaranteed as opposed to years past when it was only guaranteed for injury. So I think maybe if the Broncos can get Darnold for a third-round pick and redo his contract, or maybe they guarantee 5 or $6 million for 2022, that seems like a plausible deal to me, and I think that could be an upgrade. Now, I don't, maybe the thinking position, you could maybe move up for three first-round picks. Maybe if you want to do the Trey Lance deal and you want to get him, maybe it would cost them two first-round picks because they are not moving up quite as high as San Francisco. But to answer the other part of this question, I think they're a playoff team if they get competent quarterback play. They have a lot to like on defense with Vic Fangio. Um, I think they're deep on edge with Von Miller coming back. You got to figure they're going to get more out of him. They did in 2020, which was nothing really. Uh, Bradley Chubb coming back, another year removed from his torn ACL. That could be a really impressive edge combo. They've upgraded the cornerback. They have a ton of young talent on offense. Garrett Bulls uh, improving a left tackle really kind of solidifies the weakest part on that offense. They're getting Juwan James back on the right side. Um, there's a playoff caliber team here to me, but I think you have to get more than what you've gotten from Drew Locke at quarterback. And I'm, hmm. I think if there's a guy they love, if they love Trey Lance, you trade up. 
if you don't love Trey Lance, if it's more just, hey, we want to get an upgraded quarterback, I think you trade for Darnold. But I think both those moves are on the table for the Broncos, and I think they benefit from either of those decisions. Uh, Papa Noel underscore cool, maybe on Twitter, uh, says, why do you think the Colts have not been more aggressive in getting a backup quarterback? Seems like they need a real option more than just about anybody. Well, my guess is that they think Jacob Eason is their backup quarterback, the 2024th rounder, I believe out of Washington, I assume is going to be the backup to Carson Wentz. Now, there are still some guys out there. Brian Hoyer from the Patriots is still available. Alex Smith, uh, the former Chiefs and Washington and San Francisco quarterback is out there. I don't know if Alex Smith wants to play in 2021. I think um, obviously it would not be a starting role. I think he would probably be a backup somewhere. I think a move to the Colts would make a lot of sense for him. But my other concern here, maybe my other thought here, not concern, but I think the Colts probably would wait to address this to after June 1st. The guy like Alex Smith who got cut doesn't matter. You can sign him now and it's not going to impact the compensatory formula. But if you wait till after June 1st, if you're signing a guy who wasn't cut by his former team, then that doesn't impact the compensatory formula. So for the the Colts, I mean, I, I don't think they are really going to make much of an impact as their backup quarterback. I, I think they're sort of Carson Wentz or bust. So I don't think they're going to invest too much, but I do think that um, they might wait until after June 1st. Someone else asked me, I forgot, I wanted to put on this list and I did not, I apologize. Asked me, is there going to be a long leash for Chris Ballard and Frank Reich if Carson Wentz doesn't work out? And I would say no, uh, sorry, I would say yes. I think there is a long leash. I don't think they would be in danger if Carson Wentz struggles, because what were their options? I mean, they expect Andrew Luck to be their guy. Andrew Luck doesn't work out. They give Jacoby, or Andrew Luck retires. Jacoby Brissett gets a shot as the starter. That contract didn't turn out very good, but they had a lot of cap space. Jacoby Brissett does not work out as the starter. He's a very talented backup, I think. Probably stretched as a number one guy. They go out and get Philip Rivers for a year. Philip Rivers pushes them into the playoffs. Um, there was nothing on this roster, man. It was Jacob Eason, and they were not in position in the 20s to trade up for a guy. So I think Carson Wentz was a very reasonable move for them to make. Who knows if Carson Wentz will work out? I think he's going to be a competent starter. I don't think he has that sort of MVP ceiling in him, but I think he can be the guy from 2018 and 2019. If it doesn't work out, you try. I mean, you had to do something at quarterback, and I think that given that Jim Irsay has been very patient with his quarterback or with his coaches, you never know. I mean, I guess he could play guitar one day and it could sing to him and that would tell him to fire everyone and start over. But I do think that uh, they would get to choose at least one more quarterback before there'd be serious talk about them getting fired, Frank Reich and Chris Ballard. Um, from Orlandori. Hi, Bill. Is it really a good thing the Bucks are running it back? Winning the Super Bowl normally means almost everything went right. Assuming everything would continue to go right or the rest of the league won't adapt or that regression isn't a thing Seems risky. This is a very good question. And I think we don't talk about this enough. It's really easy to just say, bring it back, run it back. We just won a Super Bowl with these guys. Let's do it again. And we saw with the Chiefs, for example, where they really pretty much ran it back with the same guys. We saw the holes in their roster pop up here and there. And of course, they weren't as injured along the offensive line in 2021, but, or sorry, weren't, weren't as interested or injured along the line in 2019 as we saw at the end of 2020. But even guys like Bashad Breeland, for example, weren't as effective as they were the prior year. The thing I would say about running it back is this. If you are a team 
that has a sort of lucky path to the Super Bowl. Running it back is a bad idea. The 2011 Giants, who were outscored during the regular season and won a Super Bowl, they should not have run it back because they did not have the core of talent they needed. They had everything go right for a four or five game stretch at the end of the season. That's great. You know, the banner still hangs for a reason, but that was not a team that was built to be a Super Bowl contender for years to come. Now, the 2020 Buccaneers, on the other hand, second in the NFL and DVOA behind the Saints, who have shed a bunch of talent and have a major question mark at quarterback. So in terms of the, if you could take everyone back for the 2020 season and look at their current rosters and project who will be the best team in football in 2021, you can make a credible case. The Bucs are the actual best team in football heading into the season, independent of what happened in the Super Bowl. So I would maybe quibble with signing Leonard Fournette. Like, I don't think that's as essential of a signing, but otherwise I kind of think what they did make sense. I mean, they brought back a lot of pieces from a great defense, still a young core there. Um, bringing back Gronk on a one-year deal is great. Godwin, still a great player. Um, and a lot of their guys are coming back because they were already signed. I mean, you know, none of the contracts were outlandish or egregious. I, I thought it was a totally reasonable offseason from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. A couple more here. Uh, Jordan Fox asks, does anything in the slow free agent market for receivers indicate a league-wide trend towards teams prioritizing the consistently high level of receiver talent and development that's been seen in the last few draft classes? It's so funny to see this because a few years ago, I think we were seeing teams sort of argue the opposite. The idea that colleges were not delivering great wide receiver prospects. And that led to a very expensive free agent market. I think it was 2018 where Sammy Watkins and Allen Robinson got huge deals at the top of the market. A bunch of other players signed as well for deals that, you know, I wasn't expecting. And I think one of the arguments at the time was, Hey, you know, there's just not get not enough talented receivers coming out of college. Of course, the last few years, we've seen guys like Calvin Ridley, DJ Moore, uh, Justin Jefferson, CD Lamb, Brendan Ayuk come out in the first round of drafts. I think we're just looking at a short-term cycle because go back to that 2018 period. Look at the three first rounds at receiver before that free agent period. So 2015, first round picks at wide receiver. Amari Cooper, that's pretty good. Kevin White, Devontae Parker, Nelson Aguilar, Rashad Perryman, Philip Dorsett. Devontae Parker has had one good season. Uh, Kevin White was a disaster. Nelson Aguilar, one good season that with the Eagles. Rashad Perryman, a good kind of few weeks with the Bucs. Uh, Philip Dorsett, a replacement level receiver with the Patriots and the Colts. So not all that great. 2016, Corey Coleman, Will Fuller, Josh Doxon, Lacan Treadwell. I mean, Will Fuller is the only guy there who got a significant second deal. Other three guys either out of the league or bouncing around the league as replacement level talent. 2017, guys I mentioned earlier, Corey Davis, Mike Williams, John Ross. Um, John Ross signed a one-year $2 million deal with the Giants. Corey Davis, you know, big deal with the, the Jets, but certainly a guy who has been inconsistent. Mike Williams, again, inconsistent, probably after his fifth-year option, um, going to get paid, but not a guy who you would think of as a top-10 pick if given a second chance. So I think we're just maybe looking too closely at the short-term picture. I don't think uh, there was anything wrong with the wide receiver talent and the wide receiver development from 2015 to 2017, any more than it is just figuring things out from 2018 to 2020, just a three-year sample. We're looking at maybe 10, 12 guys, just not that much uh, 
not a big enough sample, huge amounts of variance in play, but um, I don't think anything has changed. But to answer your question, I do think that the reason why teams are not investing as budget receiver is because they do have so much talent coming out of the drafts. They don't need to maybe be as desperate to add those wide receivers. So I think that um, teams are reacting in the way you're suggesting, but I don't think that's a long-term trend or anything meaningful that's going to impact teams in the future from spending at receiver if we get two or three bad draft classes in a row. couple more here. Uh, MC82J says, who do you think is favored to win the NFC East after all the movement this offseason? Do you think any of these teams will hit nine wins? Let me answer the second question first. That's yes. Uh, I, I don't think that the issues with the NFC East were more than a one-year thing. I mean, think back to the 2010 season, the Beastquake year for the Seahawks when they win the NFC West at seven and nine. Um, the Beastquake happens in the wild card game, the win over the Saints. They lose the next round of the playoffs. That division looked like it was a disaster. Next year, the Niners uh, hire Jim Harbaugh. They go 13 and three. Year after that, we have the Niners with Colin Kaepernick at quarterback going 11, four and one. The Seahawks, with Russell Wilson, go 11 and five. That became one of the best divisions in football very quickly. Now, for the NFC East, is there that sort of possibility to improve quickly? Yeah, there is. I mean, the Cowboys had a ton of injuries last year to so many of their key players on offense. I mean, Dak Prescott goes down, Tyrod Smith goes down, Zach Martin goes down. Um, pretty well, Collins misses the entire year. A lot of their key pieces on offense were not healthy. They're going to be healthier this year. Might not be healthy for all 16 games, but healthier. Now, defense, I mean, God. I, I can't think of a defense that was more embarrassing on a retweet basis in terms of just blowing assignments, not knowing how to fit runs. I think getting an adult in the room or a or more experienced adult in the room in Dan Quinn is going to make the defense look more functional. So to me, they're a 10-11 win team. Even the Eagles. I mean, we don't know what they have with Jalen Hurts at quarterback, but them just getting their offensive line healthy again after all the injuries they had last year, they could be a surprise team. Um, Washington had a great defense last year, a third in DVOA, and just added Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel to their offense. That could be a really impressive team, quietly, if the defense holds up to what they did last year. The Giants, uh, let's be honest here. If Daniel Jones makes a step forward, they will be good. I am skeptical Daniel Jones will make a step forward. Manning Kenny Galladay is going to help. Um, they have pieces on both sides of the football. Uh, there are certainly people who think the Giants will be contenders in 2021. But I do think they will be a better division of the whole. It will look more like the rest of the NFL. I don't think they'll be a laughing stock unless we have a similar amount of injuries to their core players. Let's finish up here. Last question is from Katie Banks01. Katie Banks01 asks, what would an NFL equivalent of the NBA's sixth man of the year award be? This is an interesting question. I have not heard this question before. I am very intrigued. I thought about this for a long time, actually, this morning, an embarrassing amount of time this morning. I think there's not a direct comparison because NFL teams are kind of a little weirder about starts than NBA teams are. But what I came up with was the 12th player of the year. The 12th player of the year award to me is the best player who started four games or less for his team. And by pro football reference, I went to their starts total, looked up the approximate value leader. It was Mark Andrews, the Ravens, who only started two games. I, I don't think Mark Andrews qualifies for me because he plays so many snaps and 
is a regular in that offense, even though he's not technically a starter. I, I don't think anyone thinks of Mark Andrews as a 12th man in that offense. He played 58% of the snaps a year ago. The guy who came to mind for me, maybe I'm a little biased towards offensive skill position players. That's on me. I would say Naheem Hines of the Indianapolis Colts, who played 36% of the snaps, only started two games last year, but a guy who was effective as a runner, very effective as a receiver, and on top of that, a very good return guy. Uh, The Colts, I think, were fifth in the Football Outsiders punt return stat on footballoutsiders.com. Naheem Hines was their lead punt returner last year. Um, I think a player who uh, was impressive in multiple ways, was not a regular at any point really during the season, Um, not a starter for that team. Certainly Jonathan Taylor was the primary back for that team for most of the year, but a guy who was effective in his role, I think he would have been my 12th player of the year. But I'm actually intrigued. I want to know what you guys think about the 12th player of the year. I think a slot corner or maybe a a big safety could be in play here or a a edge rusher who only plays maybe 50% of the snaps. I don't know what the rule should be. Don't know what the player should be but I'm open to your suggestions. And this is it. I mean, this is the show. I I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, Got to answer some questions, which I thought was pretty cool. I thought you guys gave some really good, actually questions. I was uh, really excited about that. Thanks so much for passing those along. And this will be a one week experiment. It's not going to be the thing I do all the time, whether people like it or not. Um, I will certainly have a guest next week, but I wanted to try this this week. Hope you guys liked it. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Let me know what you thought of it and more audio coming next week. So thanks so much for listening.